Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we'll bring on a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please also visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, I'd like to turn it over to my colleague, Adam Hepworth, to introduce our guest, Trent Steck-Schulte from Equitas Health to talk about federally qualified health centers, or FQHCs for short. Take it away, Adam. Thanks, Judy, for the introduction. My name is Adam Hepworth, and I am an attorney with Foley focusing on Medicaid and Medicare, compliance with healthcare fraud and abuse laws, and administrative appeals. I work a lot with federally qualified health centers, or FQHCs, which are the topic of this podcast. For those who aren't familiar with them, FQHCs are community health centers that receive a special status in exchange for serving an underserved population and meeting a basic set of requirements set forth by HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration. FQHCs primarily serve low-income patients who have Medicaid or, or are uninsured. For today's podcast, we will talk about hot issues for FQHCs. They've emerged as a critical part of the pandemic response, receiving significant government grants and other support because of how well positioned they are to target the most vulnerable individuals who needed healthcare, included COVID testing and vaccines during the pandemic. We're fortunate today to have with us Trent Steckschulte, General Counsel and Compliance Officer at Equitas Health, an FQHC that serves tens of thousands of patients each year in Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia, with 21 offices in 13 cities. Equitas Health is one of the largest LGBTQ and HIV AIDS serving healthcare organizations in the United States. It also operates pharmacies serving patients in Ohio and Texas. Trent has been with Equitas for about seven years, and I've had the privilege of working with Trent recently in this last year, including doing some presentations together. So I'm excited to have him here. Trent, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Adam, so much. And if you want, I think we can just jump right in since we only have a short period of time. Is that okay with you? Yeah, that sounds perfect. Let's get straight to the questions. (laughs) That sounds great. (laughs) So the first thing I wanted to talk to you about, Trent, is that we're now in a bit of a weird space where the country is really starting to open up again after the pandemic, but some people are still hesitant and a lot is happening remotely that would have been in person just a couple years ago. What are the biggest operational and legal hurdles that are challenging your FQHC in our current transition period? Thanks, Adam. That's a really, really good question. And, you know, it goes back to what you said before, is that FQHCs predominantly serve Medicaid population and the uninsured population. So budgets and cash flow have always been a challenge for FQHCs. At the beginning of COVID pandemic, a lot of FQHCs were nimble and were able to transition to telehealth quite quickly, Um, but it's not surprising that many could not because they don't have the capital investment for a telehealth infrastructure or the ability to hire talent to really operationalize, you know, that type of program. So as we've gone over, you know, as regulatory health lawyers, FQHCs were expected to track and operationalize 
Medicaid waivers, Medicare waivers, licensure waivers, and other regulatory waivers that their businesses were built on. So the healthcare community, of course, nurses, providers, MAs were very nimble and quick to this. The legal community, lawyers like you, Adam, and the law firm of Foley were impressive in giving guidance in real time. And you actually saw that guidance in real time impacting health centers. Most in-house lawyers like me were scrambling just to stay organized and create some sort of compliance framework for those waivers. And that's something that we're still dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, the response to COVID from my perspective was this, constant messaging around the changes, meetings about the how to appropriately operationalize the changes and conversations around what, what waivers will stay forever and will go away once the public health emergency goes away. At the beginning, we did not know how long the lockdowns would last, how long the waivers would remain, what the real impact of COVID would have. And the worry was whether we should be changing our business model. And I think that's what a lot of community health centers are dealing with. So with the professional boards lifting a lot of their rules around practicing for telehealth, that's what we've been talking about. But one thing that I think that you know, we're not talking about enough is the impact that the COVID had on behavioral health and how important it was for telehealth to open up in the behavioral health um, sphere. But also is the operational challenges that many community health centers have that are dealing with social workers and how to coordinate care with our high-risk patients. So social workers are responsible for coordinating housing, food assistance, healthcare education resources, ensure that a patient has health insurance and coordinate prescriptions for some patients. Since COVID meant working with grantors on understanding the best ways to serve patients, a lot of those grant rules, like you said, changed. A lot of grants came through to address this, but COVID already shocked a system that was dealing with homelessness, poverty, um, and, and an issue where otherwise avoidable infectious diseases were being spread around communities at much higher rates than others. I mean, that's really interesting. I just wanted to jump in for a second because, you know, I heard you talking about social workers and, you know, coordinating these other areas. And I think some people might not realize the extent to which FQHCs are involved in those sorts of efforts. Um, and, you know, I, I've done some work in the past on the, the social determinants of health, which I know we've chatted about too. Uh, and, and for those who don't know what that term means, it's um, it's defined in the, by the U.S. government agencies as the, the conditions in the places where people live, learn, work, and play that affect basically their their health and quality of life, risks and outcomes. Uh, so the so the idea is that you know medical care only gets you so far, and that it's things like education, food security, housing, public safety that sometimes matter a lot more. And particularly in some of the you know most vulnerable communities that that don't have those, uh, and so I, I think it'd be really interesting to hear a little bit about how FQHCs are on the front lines of of addressing some of those issues, uh, because I, I I think it might be news to to some people that a, a healthcare organization that you know a community clinic would be involved in those efforts. Yeah, and many of those public health priorities you're talking about are actually going to be stalling or are inflamed right now. For instance, substance abuse and overdose deaths in Ohio are at its highest rates. You know, our community health center offers a needle exchange program. We have care coordinators and testing specialists on site. The mental health concerns coming from the pandemic is really inflaming um, that epidemic that's running rampant across Ohio. 
But also what we're seeing is that community health centers are being tasked with many of the prevention activities that otherwise would be managed by health departments. So the health departments are using their resources to respond to COVID as they should, but they've asked community health centers and other partners to really manage the patients that are traditionally within the department's purview. So one example in Ohio is a drastic, a drastic increase in syphilis. At this time, we were unsure why, but now we are starting to see congenital syphilis and babies born with syphilis, something that is so rare is now ha happening with almost alarming regularity. So our staff is working on the departments of health like that. But when you talk about social determinants of health, we talked a lot about telehealth, right? And so telehealth for sure, it's opening many doors for community health center, but it's also moving us towards healthcare being a privilege if the only way to access that healthcare is through telehealth. There are so many people that we try to reach that we do not have the ability to access with technology. We've talked about, and I think even you on a podcast have talked about the aging population and then finding unique ways to have them access technology. But what we're seeing is we're trying to reach out to the transgender teen that's kicked out of their parents' house and has no phone or the drug abuser that has no cell phone number or reliable cell phone number, or the recently unemployed service worker that couldn't afford monthly, a monthly fee to keep their phone and is no longer seeing their primary care doctor for diabetes management. So when you talk about social determinants of health, yes, education, yes, poverty, yes, where, you're, where you live, even race is a social determinant of health, but now we're starting to see that access to technology is a social determinant to health. That's so interesting. And, and, and when you're sort of taking on these new roles and, and you know, the public health departments are understandably overwhelmed by, by all the COVID responses, do, do you think this is triggering sort of long-term systemic change? Or do you think you know, it's something where things will just go back to the way they were in a few years after hopefully COVID is behind us and public health departments return to, to doing the things they were doing before? Well, one, I don't think telehealth is going to go anywhere. I think there may be some regulatory changes around what you can do through, tel through telehealth. But I think a renewed focus on funding for things like syphilis and HIV is really important. Ohio had a very aggressive goal at decreasing the transmission rate of HIV and AIDS by 90% by 2030. And, and not that the numbers are going up, but they are stalling out, which is concerning. And at this point, and I mean, you're a, you're a corporate health lawyer, many of the people listening to this podcast, maybe corporate health lawyers, you know, the civil monetary penalties on the anti-kickback statute does allow some exceptions for FQHC to provide incentives. But most of those incentives may encourage patients to seek, you know, low-cost preventative or primary care, but at some point we need to have a conversation where public health departments are subsidizing technology or subsidizing more incentives for these low-income patients, right? So I think that what this has shown is, it, is it's shown that though telehealth is reaching more people, there are still a lot of um, populations falling through the cracks. And just to kind of under, underscore how important community health centers are at this time, I wanna give a specific example because I don't want everyone just to think I'm talking a platitudes here. So last week we had a story where a 22 year old lost his serving job at the beginning of the pandemic, has since contracted HIV because he was worried he couldn't afford PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's just a once a day pill 
that if taken daily is 99% effective at protecting against HIV. He was jobless without insurance, did not think he can afford it. But to us, is, you know, it's a very inward, what should we have done better with marketing? How could we have reached him where we could have given him that prep without him you know, worried about the cost of it? How can community health centers reach out to show, even if you lose your job in insurance, there are still options for you to stay safe. Adam, to your point, that's a lot of the creative thinking that we're constantly going over with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, it's heartbreaking, but powerful, I think, to have a concrete example like this to understand sort of what the stakes are of some of the things we're talking about. I, You know, you, you mentioned something that I, I think is just a sort of a recurring tension that at least I've seen in, in healthcare and the sort of modern trends in healthcare, which is on the one hand, you have these fraud and abuse laws that are concerned with incentives to patients um, because they're concerned with overutilization and unnecessary care and, and safeguarding against sort of th- those harms to the delivery system. But on the other hand, we have these trends of whole person care and addressing the social determinants of health and and you know providing sort of a, a more comprehensive package of health and non-health services to patients to, to really um, be more effective in our outcomes. It, it, and those two things sometimes sort of come into conflict. And so you have this weird situation where innovative, you know, Medicaid waiver programs or, or other government, you know, uh, efforts like accountable care organizations want you to be doing these, this comprehensive care management and outreach to patients, but, you know, without particular waivers of, of fraud and abuse laws, you're, you're kind of running against the traditional healthcare regulatory regime. Uh, I, it's, you know, it's interesting to, to hear you feel that tension. Uh, and so to sort of pivot that way, I, I think one thing I wanted to ask you about was during the pandemic, something that was you know, very striking was the speed with which government actors uh, came in and, and tried to give regulatory flexibility to healthcare providers to waive a lot of the traditional fraud and abuse laws or to increase reimbursement or to make it easier to use technologies like telehealth. Um, and I know that that was a huge, you know, hugely important to probably all healthcare providers, but especially to FQHCs. Could you talk a little bit about what that was like? And then also from from the lessons learned from that, what what do you think needs to be made permanent as we move forward? Yeah, and I I did mention this a little bit earlier about, you know, the sprint of operationalizing all of these changes, the sprint of trying to educate patients on this technology and how to access this technology. And listen, you know, we we serve a very diverse patient population when it comes to payers. We have, you know, young employed folks with private insurance and we have, you know, Medicaid folks. We have, um, we serve a lot of different patient populations. And so, we were extremely effective on the telehealth process and our social workers, which I think are a super integral part of this, of our healthcare space, really helped with organizing and helping patients address those changes, right? So we're still dealing with it. We're still not, we didn't have a lot of patients fall out of care, thank goodness, but we have had, we did have some um, fall out of care. So that's something that we're constantly catching up on. The second question about which I think should stick around is obviously the patient and provider site rules. The provider site rules, meaning providers can be wherever they want when seeing patients and patients can be outside of the service area or in scope service area for HRSA's purposes. And what I mean by that is FQHCs were really built 
around the premise that certain areas of a city or a rural area are underserved. And so community health centers were established to address the needs of this community. Now with telehealth, we are seeing a lot of the patients within our scope, meaning in our service area, but we're also seeing a lot of patients that move away that don't wanna lose their provider, that see us, Equitas Health specifically, as an LGBTQIA plus in a service site where they can go and not feel stigmatized for, for instance, behavioral health. So I think there needs to be some sort of changes around the in-scope and out-of-scope expectations for FQHCs. And it's, I think that other community health centers are feeling the same, that a lot of patients are moving away and they want to be seen by their provider. Mm-hmm. And, and this is really, I think, related to the, the, the explosion of telehealth that we've touched on a few times, because, you know, I mean, what, 20 years ago, if you moved to a different state, I, I think that would be the end of it. You, you couldn't, you know, continue to see the same primary care provider you had. But now we're in this world where telehealth accelerated so much during the pandemic um, that it's actually possible to, to keep that relationship going. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I'm curious whether you think that this... Did, did Equitas make, you know, major sort of shifts in its capacity and delivery of telehealth during this time that, that were just accelerated beyond what anyone was expecting? Uh, sort of, am, am I on base with, with what's causing this here or am I missing something? No, 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 you're exactly right. And I think that we are seeing a lot of patients that were moving away. I mean, that's causing, just from a compliance standpoint, that's causing a separate headache, you know, mm. you know where we have to make sure that the patients we're seeing our providers are licensed in those states. So for instance, if a patient goes up to Michigan, one state away, our provider must be licensed in Michigan to see that patient sitting there. So if you don't have a workflow in place where you're checking with the patient every step of the way where they're at or where they're living, that's where you get into a little compliance issue. But that's not what we're talking about here. But what, yes, what, we're, what, what I'm seeing is that patients that otherwise we're traveling an hour or an hour and a half to come to Equitas Health can now see our providers through telehealth. We're getting a lot more patients that want to come to us because we're more accessible now through telehealth. So I don't think it's something, you know, we've consistently grown throughout my, my last seven years at Equitas Health. We continue to grow, but it hasn't been where all of the sudden we're getting a huge influx in patients. It's just slow growth. And we're seeing that patients are choosing us instead of having to choose a provider that may be on the corner. Mm -hmm. And and when you had to make those changes suddenly to sort of operationalize an expanded telehealth program, um, was was there anything that was, you know, you you think was unique about it being FQHC? I mean, I know you've already said you you tend to be, you know, a cash-strapped organization. These are low-income patients that creates its own barriers. Um, what, how, how did you confront those challenges? Yeah, so I, you know, I'll, I'll give you one example. We had a lot of concerns around public transportation being shut down. Even patients that could do telehealth still had to pick up their prescriptions somehow. So a lot of the waiver rules and you know certain uh, insurance carriers and PBMs lifting their delivery um, restrictions was huge. So now that we can deliver prescriptions to patients that we otherwise couldn't deliver patients to was important because now our patients could receive their medication that they otherwise either couldn't or were stopped from doing. So we actually had pharma, our pharmacist calling saying, hey, listen, this patient can't get here. 
Can we drive the patients to them? What's the legal risk of doing that? Are we insured? Is that a fraud, waste, and abuse issue? What's going, you know? So we had to analyze each one of those instances. And it is, it's delivery of medication was a big one. Um, another one, just to kind of piggyback off it, that I think is worth noting is that the virtual visits and the e-visits being reimbursed were huge for FQHCs because a lot of those, you know, short 10 to 15 minute conversations or virtual visits can happen. And I think it actually helps with overutilization of services because instead of telling patients they have to come into the clinic, these virtual visits can address the patient's care needs. And so we're not filling up our patient, our providers' schedules on a daily basis with patients that otherwise could be dealt with through short virtual visits. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. So I, you know, I work with a lot of FQHCs in, in California where the, the state Medicaid agency uh, started reimbursing tel- telephone visits under an emergency state plan amendment uh, to FQHCs during this, the pandemic. Uh, you know, I, they, they don't, I don't think they expect that to, to go on at least at, at PPS rates into the future, but it was really a lifeline for a lot of these uh, clinics who, you know, that was the only way they could reach some patients. Some patients, you know, don't have the technology to do a whole audio visual encounter, um, but they can get on a, a phone call and do a telephone visit. Uh, and I was wondering, you know, what, what's your experience with that in, you know, in Ohio and, and the other states you, you serve? Yeah, that's actually um, interesting you brought that up because we did have some questions early on where what happens when you're, you do audio visual for half the visit and then the other half is done by just telephone because the internet goes down or the technology fails. And so we have, we have ran into a lot of issues with that or with, you know, someone, someone being, because you have templates and you have certain things built into your EMR and your operations just to make sure that a lot of this risk is kind of absorbed, right? And so you don't have your providers having to make all these choices. So if it is an audio visual template that they're using, but they switch over to a telephone visit, you know, there's got there's a lot of training that needs to go on around switching that to a telephone visit. So you are right. It helps us be very flexible, especially with the more vulnerable populations. I do think that offering different ways to get healthcare will, will be really beneficial to FQHCs and their patient population. You know, this was this is interesting, but I sort of want to transition to a different area just because I know you you have a an experience there that I think is really interesting and, and valuable. Um, so you you know you're the general counsel at Equitas Health, but you're also I know very involved with the 340B efforts of the National Association of Community Health Centers, um, and 340B is just a super hot topic today, um, and particularly for for FQHCs. Uh, you know, it was less than a year ago that the Association of, of the FQHCs sued the Department of Health and Human Services to uh, compel an administrative dispute resolution process uh, for 340B uh, controversies with, with manufacturers uh, to handle certain, you know, alleged violations. And e- even since that lawsuit, uh, you know, there's been a number of important uh, developments in, in 340B that I think are putting pressure on the, the 340B providers like FQHCs. So because you have such unique insight into this issue, you know, would you be willing to just give us a little bit of a, a reality check or an update on, on where some of those issues stand today? Yeah, yeah, of course. And so, it, and honestly, it may be helpful just to start to underscore the importance of 340B. You know, many safety net providers depend on the discount provided by the 340B program to fund their services. 
And the program was built with the understanding that FQHCs are required to accept patients regardless of their ability to pay. It was such high Medicaid population, the discount became, you know, essentially essential for continuing to care for patients. So yes, I do, I do serve as uh, on the executive committee of the Ryan White's HIV AIDS 340B committee or RWC 340B. And we do talk a lot about this. And I know I do have some colleagues at Equitas Health that serve on various boards and executive committees nationally, but there has been a lot of activity around the 340B program that's been happening for years, but recently there has been a lot of pressure. So the first would be the contract pharmacy exclusions. So within the last couple of years, there have been manufacturers explaining that they will only provide 340B discounts through one contract pharmacy for each covered MC. It's a strange restriction, right? It's essentially saying that covered entities cannot get a discount if they contract with pharmacies that serve their patient population, right? It is very rare that any FQHC have all of their patients use one pharmacy. Sometimes there's a CVS and Walgreens across the street from one another, right? The manufacturers know that, and it's something not com contemplated by the statute. And these manufacturers are hoping to ensure that they do not have to provide the discount that's required by law. Another push has been manufacturers trying to get pay and claim information for fills at contracts pharmacies. There's no rules requiring that covered entities provide that level of data to manufacturers. And, you know, I, it, it's one of those things where it's just another line of we want to uh, collect this information to try to find a reason why we want to exclude that. And actually, manufacturers have been excluding specific high-priced drugs from the 340B program. Again, something not contemplated by the statute and a bizarre requirement because discounts should not be based on the price of the medication. So the government, you know, as you uh, said, the government has re reacted to the manufacturers by saying that they do not have the authority to enforce, enforce the contract pharmacy rules, HRSA and HHS, even when as far as to say the manufacturers are violating the statute. Hospitals filed a lawsuit demanding HHS order manufacturers. Um, grantees filed a lawsuit. And so at the same time, there's litigation around the administrative dispute resolution process or ADR process. So in January, and I believe the first rule came in 2010, in January, HHS implemented the long-awaited ADR process that resolved the overpayment process to hospitals and covered entities. And again, there's immediate manufacturer pushback on that. So all of these processes are currently being worked out through the court in various ways. There's, there's several manufacturers and the lawsuits going on at one time. And then you have the issue of modifiers, specifically P, PBM modifiers and the ongoing concerns with discriminatory reimbursement. So PBMs and manufacturers through their provider manuals are requiring that covered entities identify their 340B claims on the front end so they know how much 340B stock each covered entity is utilizing them. They're doing this, we think, because they're hoping to reimburse discriminately. So meaning PBMs and manufacturers are actually reimbursing covered entities at a lower rate depending on whether they're 340B providers. Some of them are doing this at the application process, meaning in order to join the network, you have to note whether you are dispensing 340B drugs. And if you do, they're gonna give you reduced reimbursement. From a state level, there have been several states and advocates that have gotten anti-discrimination language on the books. 
states like Ohio, Utah, West Virginia, Oregon, South Dakota, Minnesota, Montana, Tennessee. The, the law the laws vary based on whether they apply to just contract pharmacy, whether they must outright prohibit discriminatory reimbursement. But one issue that many of these, many policy folks in these states are running into is the confidentiality provisions in the payer agreements and applications themselves. So we're saying, what I'm telling you right now, we're telling lawmakers, and when they ask to see the agreements, we're saying we cannot share the agreement with you because it would violate the contract if we did so. So we always say that the argument that we don't have proof that discriminatory reimbursement is happening should not curtail lawmakers passing a rule prohibiting it because either which way it should be prohibited. Um, and if they don't pass a rule, Adam, quite honestly, if they don't pass a rule, it's almost like they're implicitly encouraging these manufacturers of PBMs to put in place discriminatory reimbursement. So that's a, that's a very high level review of the attacks on the 340B and it's, it's keeping community health center CEOs awake at night. It's keeping HIV AIDS service providers uh, awake at night quite a bit. It is, it's, a, it's a very, this is probably the biggest attack that we've had on the 340B program in quite some time. I mean, even just hearing you give the summary, it's, it's complicated and it's multifaceted and there's you know, so many different issues. I, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I, I sort of wonder, you know, do you think if this gets resolved, it's going to be through the courts, through litigation, or do you think there's going to need to be federal, you know, congressional action, or, or maybe the state laws will, will, will do it, or, or is it just something where it's just fought on, on many fronts and it's sort of like you have to take it issue by issue? Yeah, I, I do think there probably may be statutory clarification from a legislative standpoint with the contract pharmacy exclusion or the medication exclusion, you know, the claim identification issues and the ADR process will likely be you know, worked out through litigation. The discriminatory reimbursement is already being handled by state legislatures. The problem is, is it's ap how ap applicable is it to Medicare and the federal Medicare program? And so that's where I think a lot of litigation will work that out. Yeah, because we've talked about commercial payers, but I know that you know a lot of Medicaid programs and, and Medicare also pay a different different rate for 340B uh, right. drugs. So you know th those are sort of eating into the health center margins as well on the federal government side. Exactly, and so a lot of it's a lot of it's grassroots efforts. So for instance, here in Ohio, Equitas had a wonderful grassroots um, effort with the local community health center association and grantees and making the case to the Department of Medicaid and the lawmakers. And it was very successful. And we're seeing that repeated in other states, just because once you provide the basic gist of PBM shouldn't be able to discriminatory reimburse FQHCs, they look at it and they don't even think it's happening. That's why they're asking for the contract language because they're saying they were not doing that. So it's all about advocacy and at the state and local level and it's working. Okay, that's very, very interesting to hear. Uh, I think you know our time is is wrapping up here. Uh, so I want I want to thank you, Trent. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Uh, you know I I've been working with FQHC since the beginning of my career at Foley, and they are one of my complete favorite provider types, both because of the critical mission that they serve and the really interesting conflicts of legal issues that surround their operations. And I think we got a taste of that today with the sort of depth and breadth of of the experiences that you shared. 
So it's always a, a treat to talk with individuals in the FQHC community, and I'm really happy that we had this chance to chat. I appreciate it, Adam. And it's always nice. And again, you and Foley and attorneys like you and law firms like Foley make FQHC's job so much easier because of how well you responded to the COVID pandemic. And I sometimes don't think that we celebrate law firms enough in that regard is how amazing the legal community's response to the COVID pandemic was. And so again, thank you so much for everything you and Foley does. Thank you. That's very kind. And now I'll turn it back to, to Judy for closing it out. Thank you, Adam. And thank you, Trent, for a great show. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening into the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley & Lardner. We appreciate you joining us.